When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea, off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salamone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Certus, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. 
They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was rainy and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honoured us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandria ship, with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. 
We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up and on the following day, we reached Patoli. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So I was tempted just to have that instead of the Bible reading this morning, because it's basically the same thing, isn't it? If ever a part of the Bible was Gilligan's Island, it's this. When you think about it, there's a boat, there's a storm, a shipwreck, there's a skipper. All we're missing is the professor and Mary Ann. Paul is Gilligan. Um, actually, was one thing that is really cool, nothing to do with the talk, um, especially in an Olympic year... Did you know the tune to uh, Gilligan's Island actually works just as well for Advanced Australia Fair? And so if we do happen to win a gold medal at the Olympics, try singing along to Gilligan's Island for Advanced Australia Fair. It works perfectly. You can imagine how I'm going to try and explain this. I've got to preach this talk at uni church tonight. Can you imagine me explaining this to a bunch of 18-year-olds? It's a fantastic story, isn't it? And it's brilliantly told. I mean, at one level, when you think about it, all we read here is a report of Paul moving from Caesarea to Rome with a couple of hiccups along the way, a shipwreck, a stag bite, but everything's fine, he gets there. There really is no need in the overarching story of Acts to tell this detail at all. But but Luke really is a master storyteller, isn't he? Did you find yourself getting drawn into the drama? I love the way he, he just slowly builds into the drama of the storm. So they leave Caesarea and everything's fine. And then in verse 4 of chapter 27, you just get hints that maybe everything isn't quite as it should be. When Luke says, we passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. So no big deal so far. It's just that the winds are against us. Then looking down in verse 7, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. And again, it's, it's no big deal yet, it's just sailing is a bit of a grind, it's difficult making headway, that's all. But then look down in verse 9, much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. Actually, we're discovering now that sailing is more than a bit of a grind, now the sailing is dangerous. And in fact, in verse 10, you get a real sense of foreboding. When Paul warns them, men, I can see that our danger is going to be, our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and also to our lives. Now we have outright predictions of disaster. And yet the centurion and the pilot and the ship owner, they all ignore Paul. And that's when things get really hairy. Look down in verse 14. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship 
was caught by the storm and couldn't head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. Now things are just really hotting up, though, aren't they? Don't you love the way Luke just slowly draws us into his story, almost like a storm, slowly coming on, and we're feeling the beginning of it, and then before you know it, we're caught up in the middle of the storm. And actually, Luke is a master storyteller. He uses a whole bunch of different techniques to draw us in and to drag us along and to raise our blood pressure as the story goes. He uses opposition. He uses people plotting and scheming. One thing he uses really cleverly is time markers. It it seems to slow down through the story. So, verse 16, look in verse 16. It's the first night when everything is just slowly beginning to hot up, and they have to haul the lifeboats on board, and they have to drop the sea anchors, and they have to throw ropes around the ship. That's the first night, and they have to let go of the sails, and and the the ship just has to drift. And then in verse 18, dawn is broken. They've made it through the night, but the little ship's still kind of taking this violent battering by the storm, and they, they start to jettison the cargo. And then in verse 19, Luke takes us three days further into the storm, and the crew are getting more desperate. And then look in verse 20, when neither sun nor stars had appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. In fact, we discover in verse 27, the storm's been going for 14 days now. That is, two whole weeks have now passed by when they're being tossed on the sea. And just the way Luke drops these time markers makes the ordeal seem endless. Now, speaking of dropping, though, one of the things that I love about the way Luke tells this story is he uses this image of things being dropped overboard to show us how the story is progressing. See, early in the storm, in verse 16, they're kind of hopeful that things are going to work out all right. The storm's not so bad yet, and they pull the lifeboat on board. But then look in verse 18, we took such a violent battering for the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. So they were bringing the lifeboat on board, now they're throwing cargo overboard. Then look down in verse 19, on the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now the tackle's going overboard, now look down in verse 38, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. First the, uh, the cargo, then the ship's tackle, now the grain, and finally, look down in verse 43, everyone goes overboard. The centurion ordered those who could swim or jump to swim to jump overboard first to get to land. Notice the way Luke just, the way he tells his story, it just ratchets it up. The slow build-up of the storm, the way he keeps marking time, the whole idea of things being thrown overboard, he wants us to feel this tension in the storm, bit by bit by bit by bit, until finally that moment when everyone's in the water and they all get saved. And at last we can breathe a little bit easier. But of course, if you've ever watched a horror movie, you know the point where you start breathing easily is the most dangerous part of all, and just as we think that Paul is safe and our heart rate drops a little bit, he gets bitten by a snake. Out of the frying pan, into the fire, surely Paul will die this time. But amazingly, he doesn't die. In fact, he ends up healing someone else from death. 
And then he ends up healing a whole bunch of other people. And the Maltese welcome them in. And look, it really is a wonderful story, masterfully told. And over the last couple of weeks, as I've been reading it, I kind of have the sense that Luke really enjoyed writing this bit of Acts. He didn't have to make it as exciting as he did. He could have actually left it out altogether because Paul just gets to Rome. I kind of think that as you read it closely, Luke just really enjoys being a master storyteller here. And yet you've got to ask, is that all this is? Is Acts 27 just a fantastic tale that's been well told? Is it just an adventure story, the Bible's version of Gilligan's Island? Of course not. We know that God's Word is always there to do more than entertain us, it's there to teach us. And Luke wants to teach us some really important things with this story. It actually fits in perfectly to the big theme of Acts. What is the big theme of the book of Acts? What is the book of Acts all about? Well, come back with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the book, and you'll see. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirits to the apostles He'd chosen. After His suffering, He presented Himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that He was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the Kingdom of God. Now, notice the key word there in verse 1. It's the word began. Luke says his former book was all about what Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, which tells us that Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach now that he has been taken up to heaven. Jesus hasn't left the story, He's still teaching and He's still acting, it's just that now, look in verse 2, He's doing it through His apostles. They're doing it in the power of the Spirit that Jesus pours out, because verse 3, Jesus is establishing His kingdom. See, that's what the whole book of Acts is about. Jesus is ruling from heaven, sending out His apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit to spread His gospel to grow His kingdom. Jesus is conquering the world from heaven through His apostles. In fact, He's conquering to the very ends of the earth. So, look down in verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says to His apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus from heaven He's going to be sending out His apostles to Jerusalem, Judea, and actually to the very ends of the earth. That's what the whole book of Acts is all about. And in fact, when you read it, that's actually what we've seen happen, isn't it? The Holy Spirit was poured out on the, on the apostles in Acts chapter 2, and they started preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, and thousands of thousands of people got saved. And then by the time we reach chapter 6, persecution begins. And so they leave Jerusalem and they go to Judea 
and they go to Samaria. And then in Acts chapter 9, Jesus sent Ananias to Paul and said to him, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. This is the point where the gospel moves from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Now it starts to go to the very ends of the earth. And so just after that, chapter 10, we saw was when Peter preached to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, the Gentile. And then in chapter 13, we saw that Paul and Barnabas went out on their first missionary journey out to the Gentiles. Everything Jesus said back in chapter 1 is now coming true. Jesus is ruling from heaven, He's poured out His Spirit, His messengers are going to the very ends of the earth. And yet there is a question there, what are the ends of the earth? How will we know when the gospel has reached the ends of the earth? Well, that's what this whole series we've been looking at, this last series, has been all about. You see, as Paul continues to preach, opposition continues to grow, especially from the Jews. And it all comes to a head in the passage that we started this series with in Acts chapter 21 and 22. Paul was back in Jerusalem and he's preaching about Jesus and the crowd listened to Paul until he said this and then they raised their voices and shouted, rid him from the earth, he's not fit to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. See, Paul preaches in Jerusalem again, and the Jews are so outraged. They're so offended, they want to kill him. And Paul gets arrested, partly in order for his own protection, but also because this guy just seems to be a troublemaker, and for the next few chapters we've seen, Paul just seems to bounce between different cities and different officials, until finally in chapter 25, Paul got fed up, and he said to a man named Festus, if I'm guilty of doing anything that deserves death, I don't refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them, I appeal to Caesar. And after Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And that is how the gospel will go to the very ends of the earth. Because Rome really was the end of the earth as they knew it. It's nearly two and a half thousand kilometers from Jerusalem where everything started. But more than that, Rome was the hub of the great empire. It had fingers everywhere. If the gospel goes to Rome, you can say it has gone to the ends of the earth because from Rome you reach the very ends of the earth. You see, Paul traveling to Rome is not just luck. It's not just political maneuvering. Jesus is taking him there. What we're seeing is the fulfillment of Jesus' words back in chapter 1, verse 8, when He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And that means that Acts chapters 27 and 28 have to be more than just a great story about a shipwreck and a snake bite. 
Now, these chapters are all about Jesus ensuring His messenger gets to the ends of the earth so that He can preach. And when we read the stories again in that light, that's exactly what we see. Let's have another look at the stories, just one by one. We'll start with the shipwreck. It is a great story. It's well told. It's full of action. But the point of the story is not found in the action. It's found in Paul's words, which interpret the action. Whenever you're reading the Bible stories, whenever you're reading the Old Testament, whenever you're reading the Gospels or the book of Acts, pay extra attention to people's speaking, especially when Jesus speaks, because it's in the speeches that you actually get the interpretation of the action. The speeches tell you why this story is being told. And Paul speaks four times in that shipwreck story, but his key speech is verse 21. Have a look in verse 21. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as He told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Those words are the most important part of the whole shipwreck story. More than the overboard stuff, more than the rolling thunder, all that does is create tension. This is the interpretation. This is when Paul explains what's happening. And what he explains is, the centurion and the pilot and the ship owner have been stupid and stubborn. Paul told them this was going to happen. Verse 21 really is the ultimate I told you so moment, isn't it? I read one commentator who said, Paul isn't being petty here. He's not really saying, I told you so. What he's really doing is establishing his credibility that they should listen to what he's saying next. I think Paul's just saying, I told you so. I told you this would happen. I think he's enjoying this moment because he's, he's a human, right? This ship is in crisis because of the stupidity and the stubbornness of people who should have listened to him. But he says God's purpose is not going to be foiled by stupidity and stubbornness. Verse 24, the angel said to Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar. That's God's purpose. The gospel has to go to the ends of the earth, and that means Rome, and no storm is going to stop it, and the stupidity and sinful stubbornness of human beings isn't going to stop it. Just as the sinful selfishness of the sailors won't stop it, down in verse 30, look down in verse 30, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. And then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And so the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. So the sailors, who kind of know what's about to happen, they decide their best bet is to take the lifeboat for themselves. But Jesus won't let it happen. If the sailors abandon the ship, then everyone else is surely going to die. And Jesus wants Paul in Jerusalem. So Paul speaks to the centurion, 
and the men are forced to stay. That's what this story is really about. Neither weather, nor human folly, nor human sinfulness can stop the gospel getting to Rome. None of those things can stop Jesus ruling from heaven and having his gospel preached because Jesus is determined to have his gospel go out into the world. And at that point, it really is an incredibly comforting thing for us in our day, isn't it? Because more than any other time in our lives, the gospel actually does seem to be in a precarious situation, doesn't it? Much more precarious than a shipwreck. And in fact, much more precarious than even COVID. Think of the enemies arrayed against Jesus and his gospel. Media that always presents the worst possible face of Christianity. Governments who are now beginning to pass laws that make it harder to defend Christianity and preach Christianity. Not only that, the sin within the church of Christian leaders who do horrible things and and who completely undermine the very message we're preaching. Never mind a storm or a snake bite, the early, 20th, early 21st century really does look like it'll be the death of Christianity. Earlier this year, one of the most high-profile, powerful and successful Christian evangelists in the world over the last 40 years had his ministry completely disgraced. Ravi Zacharias, he travelled the world, preaching Christianity. And the thing is, he wasn't just a Bible teacher, he didn't just speak to Christians, he was an evangelist. He was at the very front line of taking the Christian message to the world and making it credible and making it reasonable and making it believable. He had a global ministry. He spoke at conferences, he was regularly on the TV and on radio, and he wrote books that millions of people have read and found comforting, including me. And it really did look like that after his life ended, because he died earlier, earlier this year, after his life ended, it looked like his books would live on for generations after him. And yet, not long after his death, horrible rumours began to circulate. Rumours about sexual misbehaviour. And then finally, his own organisation, his own ministry, released a report that confirmed abuse by him at day spas. He actually owned massage parlours and they found five, five additional victims in the US as well as evidence of sexual abuse in Thailand, India and Malaysia. This was probably the most prominent Christian speaker in the world. How can the gospel survive that? Let's face it, if this was a political party, if this was an organisation, they couldn't survive it, could they? It would be the end. And of course, Ravi Zacharias's ministry now must be completely discredited. His books, and his preaching have been completely discredited. But Jesus' gospel hasn't been. The gospel that Ravi Zacharias preached but never actually lived, that's going to survive and continue because it was never Ravi Zacharias's gospel, was it? It was Jesus' gospel. Jesus is the one ruling from heaven, 
Jesus will ensure that His gospel continues to be preached to the ends of the earth, and Jesus will continue to bring people to faith. We ought to be really saddened when we hear stories about Ravi Zacharias, just as we ought to be saddened when we see governments passing laws that will make it harder to preach Christianity, and we ought to be saddened when we see Christians misrepresented in the media. Those things are tragic. We ought to be saddened. But don't be disheartened. Because Christianity is not Ravi Zacharias's message. It's Jesus' message. And Paul's words here, in the midst of the shipwreck, show Jesus' intention to have his gospel preached to the very ends of the earth. So Paul's words take us to the heart of the message. But in a really cool way, Luke uses another tool alongside speech to teach his point. He uses the way Paul gets presented to us. See, whenever you're reading the stories of the Bible, alongside the direct speech that people make, it's always worth asking, how are the people being presented to us? What are we supposed to think of these people? Do they remind us of anyone? And throughout the shipwreck and the story at Malta, Luke deliberately paints Paul in a way that looks like Jesus. Did you notice in, in the shipwreck how Paul, even though he's a prisoner, gradually starts to take control over the ship? He starts off by warning them of the danger, and then in the middle of the storm, he starts to comfort people, and he starts to encourage them to have courage because he has faith in God. In fact, the longer you read that story, the more Paul starts to remind you of Jesus when he calms the storm with his disciples. In fact, have a look at what Paul does down in verse 33 of chapter 27. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. And then he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. And altogether, there were 276 of us on board. Does that remind you of anyone? I think we're meant to see Jesus in Paul here. We're meant to see Jesus in the wilderness with the crowds who need feeding. And taking five loaves of bread and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. Luke even uses the same words to describe what Paul does to remind us of what Jesus did back in Luke chapter 9. He even tells us how many people were there, just like he did back in Luke chapter 9. Luke, for some reason, is deliberately painting Paul in such a way that he reminds us of Jesus. That is, as we look at Paul, it's almost as if we can see Jesus shining through him in some way. It's even clearer when they reach Malta in chapter 28. After the shipwreck, they make it all safely to Malta, and as soon as they get to land, Paul gets bitten by a snake, which leads the, the, the superstitious Maltese to think that he must be a murderer. Because when you think about it, anyone who is so unlucky as to survive a shipwreck and then die of a snake bite, clearly this has to be the gods gaining vengeance. 
And then when Paul doesn't die, they do a complete backflip and decide he must be a god because they're superstitious, you see. But look down in verse 7, chapter 28, verse 7. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us, uh, his, showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. Now again, does that remind you of anything? Has anything like that ever happened before? Yes. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus left to the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he, went, he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. You see, Paul does almost exactly the same set of miracles as Jesus did. A parent figure in bed with a fever a miraculous healing, and then people coming from everywhere, and all of those people in the whole region being healed. It's almost as if we can see Jesus shining through Paul here. Why is Luke doing this? Why, what's Luke trying to tell us here? Could it be that Paul is meant to be some new kind of Jesus? So, Jesus' ministry is finished because He's gone up to heaven, and Paul is the replacement figure in Christianity. He is now the new great preacher, now that Jesus has left the stage. Paul is Jesus, Mark 2. No, that can't be it. Because remember, back in chapter 1, verse 1, Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus was sending out His messengers... The whole book is Jesus acting through his preachers. And Luke's deliberately presenting Paul as a Jesus-like figure here so that we will see Jesus shining through, so that we'll see that Jesus is the one who is actually bringing them safely through the storm. Jesus is the one who is healing people. Jesus is the one who is making the gospel go out. And we're meant to be thinking to ourselves, Ah, Paul is a lot like Jesus. No, 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 no. Jesus is working through Paul. It's Jesus doing these things. Paul is just the messenger who's been sent. And again, that's actually really incredibly helpful for us in our day because it shows us that Jesus is the one who we're meant to be seeing in history and in church and through every Christian activity. Jesus is the one we're meant to be seeing, not the apostle, not the preacher. I came across a church recently where the senior pastor actually calls himself the apostle. That was the title that he had taken for himself. He is the Apostle. His wife is called the First Lady. I suggested that Emma should get onto that. She wasn't so keen. Along with all of the privileges 
that go with being called an apostle. I did wonder if we should test it by getting a snake to bite him and see what happens. I also thought how badly he has missed the point. The point isn't to be the apostle with all its glory and all of its show. The point is to see Jesus, that Jesus is the one who comes to the fore. That is Paul's glory in this passage of guiding people through a shipwreck to safety and surviving a snake bite and doing all those healings. We are meant to see straight through Paul to Jesus sitting, ruling in heaven, the one who gave Paul the Holy Spirit in the first place, the one who sent Paul to preach in the first place, the one who puts words in Paul's mouth in the first place, the one who will move people from death to life. That is, this passage tells us to always be suspicious of any time we ever see a human being striding to the fore. Any time a church starts to aggrandize a human being, focus on what humans have done, we ought to be deeply suspicious because it's Jesus' message, it's Jesus' kingdom, it's Jesus' church, not ours. When it comes down to it, every human being is more or less like Ravi Zacharias in the end. We may put up a good front, but behind it we are deeply and fatally flawed. It's Jesus who actually spreads His kingdom. He's the one who deserves the glory. Let's pray. Our great Father, we praise You for what we see behind the action here. We see Jesus ruling from heaven, sending His Apostle to Rome to preach to the very ends of the earth. We praise You that it's more than a great story. We praise You that it's more than Paul being the hero, but that Jesus is the hero. And we praise You that Jesus is still ruling from heaven. In that, nothing has changed in 2,000 years, and so we pray that You would continue to see the Gospel preached. We pray that it would continue to go to the very ends of the earth, and we pray that you would give us confidence in our end of the earth, that despite pressure from media and governments and laws, and even despite preachers who seem to do more damage than good, we pray that you would save 30,000 people in our city, just for a start. We pray that Jesus from heaven would call people in Newey and Lake Mac to himself, and we believe he can. Amen.